morning. Is it clear at the back? Liju? Okay, great. All right. So we'll continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's good that there are two screens here and everybody can see. And I can see as well. There's a screen right opposite me. All right. So uh, as was clear from the reading, we will be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in its entirety today. Thank you, Stephen, for, uh, for reading and praying for me as well. So an archaeologist once hired some Inca tribesmen for an expedition, and he wanted to do some archaeological surveys deep in the mountains. So he, he hired all these Inca tribesmen, and uh, they were moving at a great pace. They were going from one site to another, and all of a sudden, these uh, tribesmen stopped, and they wouldn't move further even after a lot of persuasion by this archaeologist. And he tried to persuade them that they should go further, but uh, they said, no, we need to stop for a moment. And after about a couple of hours, they started, they took up the gear and they started moving further again. And this guy was angry because they had wasted two hours of his time in his archaeological surveys. And so at the end of the day, he looked at them and he asked them the question, why did you pause for those two hours? Why did you stop for those two hours? What was the reason you had to stop for those two hours? And the tribesmen looked at him, the archaeologist, and, he, and they said, we had been moving too fast, and we had to wait for our souls to catch up. We had been moving too fast, and we had to wait for our souls to catch up. When was the last time that we realized in our busy schedules that we've been moving too fast, and we had to wait to catch up on something that is important, perhaps something that is transcendent as well? You know, in his book, Hamlet's Blackberry, William Powers talks about one of his friends. She is from a non-English-speaking country, and she had moved into the United States. And so this William Powers wanted to check on her as to how she is doing after she moved into the United States. And so he texted her, how are you doing? She responded by saying, busy, very busy. And then he texted her again a couple of hours later. It was the same response again, busy, very busy. Every time he would text her, how are you doing? She would text back saying, busy, very busy. And then he figured out why she was doing it. She was actually copying the Americans. Because she thought that whenever she asked any American, how are you doing? The response was busy, very busy. And so she thought it was a polite way of responding to somebody when they would ask the question, how are you doing? Busy. Very busy. Now that's a refrain in our Modern day culture, isn't it? If somebody asks you the question, somebody were to ask most of us the question, how are you doing? Busy. Very busy. So in our busy world, is there anything that gives us lasting meaning? Is there anything that gives us lasting fulfillment? Or, as I go through this busy life, as I go through my busy schedule on a daily basis, I see certain things that are mysterious to me. I see certain things that are enigmas to me. I see certain things that are shocking. I see certain things that I cannot explain and have an answer from. They are unjust sometimes. What do they point me to when I look at all these things? What do I learn from these things? What lessons can I take from these incidents 
or enigmas or mysteries or injustices sometimes that I see around in the world. So the book of Ecclesiastes explores life under the sun, a life without God, life without Jesus, life purely from this worldly perspective. And it exposes the ultimate bankruptcy of trying to find meaning and happiness and security and significance apart from God. Now, this book, as we've seen over the last few months, in fact, several months, this book is very depressing. And it's meant to be. It is meant to lead us to despair. So we cry out, is this all there is to life? Is this all there is to life? There must be something transcendent. There must be something above the clouds, apart from what is happening in this world that would give us relevance, that would give us fulfillment, that would give us satisfaction, that would give us meaning. But the point is, Ecclesiastes does not provide answers to questions that it raises. The whole book, on the other hand, is intended to help us find freedom by realizing that life without God is meaningless. All it helps us do is realize that life without God is meaningless. So if you and I ever hope to find meaning in life, if you and I ever hope to find satisfaction, lasting happiness, it's going to have to come from outside this world. It's going to have to come from an alien world. It's going to have to come from outside our busy schedules. It's going to have to come from beyond the facilities of this world. So in today's passage, Solomon describes some problematic human behaviors. He talks about a few problematic human behaviors that contribute to the heavy burdens that are in the world. And he says, he in fact raises these examples and makes it clear that human dysfunction plays a major role in all of the problems and struggles of life. He talks about human dysfunctions. He raises four of them, we'll see that. And he says they contribute, they add to the problems and struggles of life. In fact, the preacher this morning is trying to talk about the dangers of living like the world, the dangers of living apart from God, the dangers of living apart from Jesus, the dangers of living apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he observes four enigmas in this world that we need to be aware of as we live in this world. Four mysteries, or four enigmas as he calls it. And by the way, this is a very enigmatic passage, so please give me your undivided attention. So he looks at four enigmas, and he wants us to be aware of them as we live in this world. But the point is, he does not give us any advice on any of these enigmas. These mysteries would not lift us out of pain, but they might help us to live within the pain. They might help us to live within the pain. So today's passage will reveal to us four enigmas, like I said, that show injustices in the world. Four mysteries or four scenes or four pictures that Solomon is painting for us that reveal to us there's injustice in each picture. There's a mystery, there's an enigma in each picture. So that we might turn to each of them, look at them, and, no, and find no answers in them, but look to God alone for the answers and look to God alone to be able to live in this world with meaning and with significance and with lasting happiness. And so in verses 1, do I need to point to that? Can you open that for me, please? Okay. So in verses... 1, 2, and 3, you will see that this is the first enigma that Solomon is talking about. He says, oppression, 
brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable state. Now listen to this, please. Oppression brings sorrow is what he's saying. And he says it makes non-existence a desirable state or a desirable option. Solomon was so devastated by seeing all the oppression in the world that he decided it was better to be dead than to face all the oppression in the world. In fact, he goes one step further and he says, it is better never to have been born at all than to see all the oppression in the world and even to have to face all the oppression in the world. And Solomon talks about this by detailing two things. And let me go step by step and Kevin will help me out, please. First thing, Solomon saw pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people, but he also saw unconcern on the part of the powerful. He saw pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people, but he also saw absolute unconcern on the part of the people who could have provided them with some kind of help. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppression that, oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, when you look at the description that Solomon is giving here, it is grim, and it's a pitiful one. From his wide-ranging knowledge, from all the surveys that he has done, and his richly varied experience, the preacher drew one irrefutable conclusion. And the conclusion is this, that oppression was rampant throughout the world. Oppression was seen everywhere in the world. Oppression is a pervasive thing in the world. Hear me, please. Sarla is an 11-year-old girl. She has a beauty about her, but it's a beauty that's tinged with sorrow, sadness, brought about by years of abuse. Her childhood and innocence have been taken away. She tried to talk to her mother about it, but mother is helpless herself, and she doesn't know what to do, and she's ashamed. And Sarla is oppressed and she has no hope. Ravi works for a chemical company. And he knows that every day is breathing in fumes that could ultimately kill him. But he can't complain about those fumes or he can't complain to the management. He dare not complain because he will lose his job and somebody else might be ready to take his place. He's married. He has four children. He can barely make an existence. He's oppressed. And he has no hope. Sandhya, well, she hasn't got a name but that's the name I gave her here. Her parents don't really admit that she exists. She's a 12-week-old infant. 12-week-old. She is very small. She only weighs 18 grams. And she is 17.5 centimeters long. She has a brain. She has a nose. She has ears. She has a heartbeat. She also has little toenails. But the fact of the matter is, in a few moments, her parents themselves are going to kill her. Oppression. She has no hope. The world is full of pain. The world is full of sadness. The world is full of sorrow. Turn on the news media, not the ones that, you know, give you all candy-coated stories, but the real news media, turn to it, and they will tell you that the world is full of sorrow. And Solomon was devastated by what he saw. He said, life can be unfair, and there is so much of injustice in the world. The oppressed had no one on their side to comfort them. So that's the first thing that he talks about. Secondly, Solomon concluded that death and non-existence are better than a life full of oppression. 
Solomon concluded that death and non-existence are better than a life full of oppression. The first thing that he talked about is that this life is full of oppression. We see oppression everywhere in the world. But he comes to a very strong conclusion. He says, death is better than to face oppression. In fact, non-existence is much better than to face oppression. Look at verses 2 and 3, please. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The age in which Solomon lived was far removed from the golden days of Israel's beginnings. Now the sense of concern for the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan had long since diminished. And apparently this was an age when the rich continued to acquire more and more while the poor toiled even harder to make a living for themselves. Wages were low for them, hours were long, and there were no rights at all for them. And the oppressed had no way to express themselves except through the tears that they were shedding. And they had no one to comfort them except the other people who were themselves oppressed. In fact, Solomon looks at all of these things, he and his evaluation is brought about in some of the strongest words that are used in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And he says this, it was better to be dead. It is better to be dead than to see all the oppression or to have to face all this kind of an oppression. In fact, it is better that somebody is never born at all. Somebody would not have existed at all than to have to see all this kind of an oppression. So that is the first enigma that he talks about here. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we saw that oppression brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable thing. What is the enigma here? The enigma is this. Here on the one hand, you have oppression. On the other hand, the solution that Solomon gives is non-existence. Is it even possible as a solution? It is outside the reach of human options. It is outside the reach of human capabilities. And that's why Solomon calls it an enigma. This is the first enigma that he talks about. Oppression brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable state. Then there's a second enigma that we need to be aware of. As we live in this world is what Solomon says. And that is in verses 4 through 6. They say that envy results in rat race. And makes work a meaningless effort. Now listen to me please. A lot of us seated here are working in corporate firms. And I want you all to listen to me very carefully please. Solomon says this. Envy results in rat race. And makes work a meaningless effort. Competition by itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with competition. But when we use competition to find our worth. To find our meaning to find our value through competition, then that can become very lethal. Then that can become a very deadly thing. And Solomon, in trying to explain that, he talks about two things here. Firstly, Solomon believed that much effort is motivated by the desire to outclass others. The reason why people work hard is just to make sure they outclass their neighbor or they outclass others. Look at verse 4. Not my words, Solomon's. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, if you remember, Solomon had talked about work before. In chapter 1 and all of that, we saw Solomon had spoken about work before. But here he dug a little deeper. He exposed the hollowness of what really it is that motivates our work. What is that that really motivates our hard work? And he came to the conclusion that what motivates our hard work is envy. 
is rivalry. Now, this is a very, very painful observation. People claim to be toiling and people claim to be working hard for various good reasons that they might give. For example, to feed your family or love for family or concern for the community or the society or even service of God. But at the bottom of the matter, says Solomon, the reason why we work so hard is to either keep up with or better to get ahead of our neighbors. That's why we work hard is what Solomon says. John A. Stewart, sorry, uh, John A. Stewart uh, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says this, healthy competition among individual workers and rival companies leads to world-changing discoveries and increased productivity. Now, it's good to have a healthy competition. It's good to have a healthy competition in a classroom, in a, in a workspace, and even between companies. You know, that's where you get the best out of uh, each individual or each company. But he says this, unbridled rivalry however, leads to destruction, imprisonment, and even murder when winning becomes everything. When it's unbridled, and the sheer motivation is to just outclass somebody else, then that is a very dangerous thing. That is a very lethal thing, is what Solomon says here. Even John A. Stewart in his commentary affirms that. Abraham Lincoln was once walking on the road, and I'm told this is a real story. He was once walking on the road with his two boys, and his two boys were just fighting. And he was the president of the United States then. And all of a sudden, a passerby was looking at what was happening here. He stopped Abraham Lincoln, and he asked, why are your two boys fighting? What are they fighting about? And he said this, it's not something that's wrong with my boys alone. It's what's wrong with the world. I have three walnuts in my pocket, and my boys want two each. Two boys, I have three walnuts in my pocket, and my boys want two each. That's a picture of what the world is. It's a picture of the envy, of greed, of discontentment that exists in our world. You know, professionals, a lot of us professionals, we want to work up the ladder. And we, we sacrifice a lot of things in doing that. We work all the hours that there are. And in the process, we perhaps sacrifice our marriages, we perhaps sacrifice our friendships, our children, our time with God, our cell groups, just to climb that corporate ladder and think and be in the place where you and I think we ought to be. It's a rat race. The world is a rat race. And you know the bumper sticker? Even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. That's what the bumper sticker says. Even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. The question this morning is this. What are you prepared to do to get where you want to be? Are you prepared to even implicitly trample down some people and oppress some people on your way up? Now, that's not the way a Christian ought to do. Achievement under the sun that does not put God first, whether in the secular world or in ministry even. Achievement under the sun that does not put God first will leave you frustrated because the motivation force is always envy to become better than somebody else, to become better than your neighbor, or to become better than your fellow minister, and envy will never be satisfied. Envy will never be satisfied. That's the first thing that Solomon says as we begin uh, the second enigma. Then there's a the second thing that Solomon is talking about here. Solomon reckoned that 
composed effort with rest is better than back-breaking labor with excessive wealth. What he's saying is, if you compose yourself and exert moderate effort, and if you get enough rest along with that, that's much better than a lot of strenuous labor that you do where you have no rest at all, but you have a lot of wealth. Look at verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. If rivalry, now listen to the question, please. This is what Solomon's argument is. Earlier, in the first point, he said, what motivates your hard work? It's rivalry. It's envy. So immediately the question that comes to your mind is, if rivalry is what motivates so much labor, then perhaps it's better not to work, isn't it? It's better not to work. Then Solomon immediately quotes a proverb that addresses the importance of work. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The fool folds his hands, which means he refrains himself from working, but at the end of the day, he ends up eating his own flesh. The idiom of folding one's hands is a very famous idiom in Old Testament wisdom literature. It means he is resting. It means he's idle. It means he's sleeping. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, they say this, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a, uh, like a robber and want like an armed man. So the result of such inactivity and idleness is that they end up killing themselves. It is almost like self-cannibalism. What does it mean? It means that they would never have enough. They would never have enough to eat, and therefore they will starve themselves to death. So the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. But then Solomon quotes another proverb in verse 6 that has an ironic twist to it. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Solomon is saying, if the motivation of one's hard work is envy, if the motivation of one's hard work is rivalry, then a little bit of rest is better than all the wealth you could have with no rest at all and no peace and no quietness at all. A little bit of rest is better than all the wealth you could have with no quietness and no peace. Solomon here is saying that you cannot compare a life where you exert moderate effort and you have enough rest with a life which is full of work, strenuous hard work, and you have all the wealth but no rest and peace. You cannot compare these two things. And Solomon, every time given a choice, he has always preferred quality over quantity, the quality of life than all the wealth you could have in the world. Now let me get up close and personal here to most of us as you listen to me this morning. I think this little section has something to say to many of us seated here, including I, as I speak about this. How many warnings are there in scripture regarding the acquisition of things? Of how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because the acquisition of things, the love of things, the greed, the ambition, the striving, the grasping, the two-handsful mentality can so easily get in the way of things that are absolutely important. And the most important thing in our lives is not to have all the wealth in the world. The most important thing in our lives is to have a relationship with God, is knowledge of God. And if all these things can get in the way of God, it is meaningless. It is meaningless. And that's why Paul puts it so beautifully. He says, 
Godliness with contentment. Can you finish that? Is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So Solomon reckoned that composed effort with rest is better than backbreaking labor with excessive wealth. So two enigmas that he talked about so far. The first thing is oppression brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable state. Then second thing he said is envy results in rat race and makes work a meaningless effort. Then there's a th- third uh, enigma that Solomon wants us to know, and that is in verses 7 through 12. They say that compulsive desire to acquire wealth breeds loneliness and destroys fellowship. It is a great desire for us, a great motivation for us to run after wealth, to acquire more and more wealth, to acquire more things in the world. You may acquire, end up acquiring more things in the world, but it breeds loneliness. It ends up bringing loneliness to you, and you actually end up losing fellowship. You end up losing fellowship. What does self-centered pursuit of money do to friendship? It makes community and relationships impossible, is what Solomon says. And again, Solomon has two thoughts about it. Look at the first one that he says. Solomon thought that acquiring wealth was useless when it isolated a man and robbed him of enjoyment. When it isolated a man and robbed him of enjoyment. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either a son or a brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now listen to what Solomon is saying here. He is describing a person, and this person has a lot going for him. First thing, he is independent, and he can live however he pleases. He's got everything going for him. Secondly, he has a job and a demanding one at that. And thirdly, he has money. This man has money. Now picture somebody who has a great job and works long hours. Relationships have come and gone, but he's doing okay. Uh, They have a condominium. He has some money saved away. He can pretty much buy anything that he wants to buy. He's not rich, but he has enough money to buy some stuff because he's saved away some money. It's a pretty good life overall. So that's the picture that Solomon paints here. Now, you meet this kind of people you know, all around in Bangalore, everywhere you travel. In fact, if you're, a, if you're in the HR department, if you're hiring somebody, this is the kind of person you would want to hire in your company. But there are two problems with this picture that Solomon is painting. The preacher examines this picture, and he says there are two problems with it. The first thing is that success for this man comes at a pretty steep price. Success for this man comes at a pretty steep price. Look at verse 8. He speaks there of a vicious circle and he says, there is no end to the toil. There is no end to the toil. Why is that? Because he is never satisfied. No matter how much you earn, it's never quite enough. Last year's bonus was nice. It was good. But just to better last year's bonus, I need to put in more hours this year. Isn't it? Otherwise, I wouldn't better my last year's bonus. So you're caught in this treadmill of never having done quite enough. And you feel like the carrot is on the stick and you're running to catch it, but you can never run fast enough to actually catch it. You're never quite there. And you see this quite often. The stuff that we think will make us happy ultimately doesn't make us happy. No job, no profession, no pleasure is enough to fulfill the desires of our heart. That's the first thing that he says. 
The second problem that he finds with this man is that this person, in trying to run after money, in trying to run after position, in climbing up that corporate ladder, has lost all relationships in the process. He's been so self-centered that he's cut off people, he's lost all fellowship and uh, relationships in the process. He is successful, but he's solitary. Verse 8 says, he has no other, either a son or a brother. But it doesn't bother him most of the time because he doesn't think about it. He always thinks about his career and what is ahead of him. And he tries to avoid thinking about it. And he never pauses long enough to ask these questions. Why am I doing it? For whom am I doing it? I don't have any fellowship at all. And Solomon concludes by saying that the pursuit of such a person is vanity. is a striving after the wind. It's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Now here's a big help that Solomon is giving. Anna. Listen to me please this morning. Here's a big help that Solomon is giving us. The preacher is wanting us not to do this. The preacher is warning us not to be a person like that. Don't become a successful, solitary person, is what Solomon is saying. You will end up being enslaved to your work, not really satisfied, and the point is, you will have no one to share it with as well. You will have no one to share it with. Let's pause here for a moment and reflect on a few things. We live in a world where we'll have to make choices inevitably. We'll have to inevitably make different choices. Robert Louis Stevenson once said this, and this is very interesting and uh, very profound as well. He said, perpetual devotion to what a man calls his business is only to be sustained by perpetual neglect of many other things. If a man calls something business, and if he wants to sustain his interest in that, He's saying that is only possible if he perpetually neglects something else. I know that some of you are are facing pressures at work. Some of you have even talked to me about it. And you're making difficult choices. And if you don't keep up in your workplace, there are others who will gladly take your place. I know it and I've been there too. The preacher here this morning is holding up this picture for you, the, the picture of the man that he talked about. And he's asking you this question, is this what you want? Is this what you want to be? Are you sacrificing your relationships for the sake of your career? Are you sacrificing your fellowship for the sake of your career? In the end, it will only result in a place where you'll be successful but solitary. You'll be successful but solitary. So Solomon thought, that acquiring wealth was useless when it isolated a man and robbed him of enjoyment. Second thing, Solomon called attention to several advantages that came from cooperating with others, that came from partnering with others, that came from fellowship with others. Look at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand with him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, in contrast to this successful, solitary person, or the person who achieves temporary fame and acclaim, Solomon offers another picture for us, the picture of another man. And this man is in a genuine community. This man is in genuine fellowship. Now, Solomon here has given three pictures, and this is the only picture where 
it does not end with the pronouncement of vanity. Everywhere else, the first two points, he said vanity and vanity. But here, he doesn't talk of it as vanity because this is what he wants us to concentrate on. The preacher says, this is what we should aim for, a man in a genuine community. And Solomon here gives four benefits of genuine community in these verses. Firstly, he says, we will have a larger profit. Look at this verse. Look at verse uh, 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. They have a good reward for the toil. Two people working together can produce double the amount a single person can produce alone, isn't it? You get double reward for your toil. And not just that, it's a lot more fulfilling because you have somebody to share it with. You have somebody to share it with. Secondly, he says, the second advantage of being in fellowship is that we'll find time, we'll find uh, help in time of need. We'll find help in time of need. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So we will have help in time of need. Thirdly, we'll have more comfort. Again, he says, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So now, this sounds very strange to us. But in the ancient Near East, particularly in the first century world and all of that, people used to travel long distances. And they would travel long distances and they would sleep by the side of the road in the night. It's very cold. And even if you have a good blanket, if you sleep alone, you would still feel cold. But if you sleep in the midst of people in a community, or at least with another person, he could provide, he could provide warmth is what uh, Solomon is saying here. We'll have more comfort. So firstly, we'll have a larger profit. We'll find help in times of need. We'll have more comfort. And fourthly, Solomon says, we'll have greater protection. We'll have greater protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord cannot be broken. The greater the numbers, the more the numbers, the better it is for us. When you're alone, you're vulnerable, but when you're in a community, you have greater protection, is what Solomon says. Spurgeon said this. He said, communion is strength. Solitude is weakness. In the forest, supporting each other, the tree laughs at the hurricane. The sheep of Jesus flock together. The social element is the genius of Christianity. Fellowship is the genius of Christianity, is what, Sol uh, is what uh, uh, Spurgeon says. So Solomon so far has spoken about three enigmas in this world. Firstly, oppression brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable thing. And then he also talked about envy and said envy results in a rat race and makes work a meaningless effort. Thirdly, he went on to talk about the compulsive desire to acquire more and more wealth. And he says that breeds loneliness and that destroys fellowship as well. You become alone. You, be, uh, you remain solitary. Then there's a final thing that Solomon wants us to understand as an enigma. And that is in verses 13 through 16. They say that wisdom may help a ruler do well during his reign, but assures neither stability nor a claim. I'll explain that here. He says it is futile to work to gain advancement. It is futile to work to gain popularity, thinking that these advantages will last for long. They will not last for long, is what Solomon's point is. So two things again, very quickly. Firstly, Solomon supposed that a poor but a wise youth was of more value than a king who was no longer open to advice. 
Look at verses 13 and 14. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. Now, there are some debates about these verses. These verses are not very clear in the Hebrew language, but here is as best as I can see them. There's an old foolish king who's lost touch with his people, and he won't take any advice from his ministers. Perhaps he's fired all his advisors. You know, I can think of a number of politicians who, who have done that. Uh, once they reach the top, they stop listening, and eventually they drift towards irrelevance, and people are happy they're gone once they're gone. Right? So here is that king. And then you have another young fellow, somebody new, somebody better who comes along. He comes from nowhere. In fact, here in this passage, he comes from a prison. And he gets all the way to the throne. He captures the imagination of people and he inspires them to hope again. He He becomes immensely popular. And again, I can think of many examples, many new leaders who have come up and inspired hope in people as well. Their popularity levels for the first few moments have been off the charts. And here is a young wise lad who seemingly in the story has gone from a prison all the way to the throne. He is given greater acclaim. He is given greater popularity and people forget the old king. Solomon says that happens and life is not fair. Life is not fair. Although the young fellow is better than the old king who is not taking advice, it is not fair that the old king is forgotten. But hold that it does not end with the pronouncement of vanity. Everywhere else, the first two points, he said vanity and vanity. But here, he doesn't talk of it as vanity because this is what he wants us to concentrate on. The preacher says this is what we should aim for, a man in a genuine community. And Solomon here gives four benefits of genuine community in these verses. Firstly, he says... We will have a larger profit. Look at this verse. Look at verse uh, 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. They have a good reward for the toil. Two people working together can produce double the amount a single person can produce alone, isn't it? You get double the reward for your toil. And not just that, it's a lot more fulfilling because you have somebody to share it with. You have somebody to share it with. Secondly, he says, the second advantage of being in fellowship is that we'll find time, we'll find uh, help in time of need. We'll find help in time of need. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So we will have uh, help in time of need. Thirdly, we'll have more comfort. Again, he says, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, this sounds very strange to us, but in the ancient Near East, particularly in the first century world and all of that, people used to travel long distances. And they would travel long distances and they would sleep by the side of the road in the night. It's very cold. And even if you have a good blanket, if you sleep alone, you would still feel cold. But if you sleep in the midst of people in a community, or at least with another person, he could provide, he could provide warmth is what uh, Solomon is saying here. We'll have more comfort. So firstly, we'll have a larger profit. We'll find help in times of need. We'll have more comfort. And fourthly, Solomon says, we'll have greater protection. We'll have greater protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, 
two will withstand him and a threefold cord cannot be broken the greater the numbers the more the numbers the better it is for us when you're alone you're vulnerable but when you're in a community you have greater protection is what solomon says spurgeon said this he said communion is strength solitude is weakness in the forest supporting each other the tree laughs at the hurricane the sheep of jesus flock together the social element is the genius of christianity fellowship is the genius of christianity is what solomon uh, is what uh, uh, spurgeon says so solomon so far has spoken about three enigmas in this world firstly oppression brings sorrow and makes non-existence a desirable thing and then he also talked about envy and said envy results in a rat race and makes work a meaningless effort thirdly he went on to talk about the compulsive desire to acquire more and more wealth and he says that breeds loneliness and that destroys fellowship as well you become alone you be, uh, you remain solitary then there's a final thing that solomon wants us to understand as an enigma and that is in verses 13 through 16 they say that wisdom may help a ruler do well during his reign but assures neither stability nor a claim i'll explain that here he says it is futile to work to gain advancement it is futile to work to gain popularity thinking that these advantages will last for long they will not last for long is what solomon's point is so two things again very quickly firstly solomon supposed that a poor but a wise youth was of more value than a king who was no longer open to advice look at verses 13 and 14 better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice for he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been born poor now there are some debates about these verses these verses are not very clear in the hebrew language but here is as best as i can see them there's an old foolish king who's lost touch with his people and he won't take any advice from his ministers perhaps he's fired all his advisers you know i can think of a number of politicians who who have done that uh, once they reach the top they stop listening and eventually they drift towards irrelevance and people are happy they're gone once they're gone right so here is that king and then you have another young fellow somebody new somebody better who comes along he comes from nowhere in fact he here in this passage he comes from a prison and he gets all the way to the throne he captures the imagination of people and he inspires them to hope again he is he becomes immensely popular and again i can think of many examples many new leaders who have come up and inspired hope in people as well their popularity levels for the first few moments have been off the charts and here is a young wise lad who seemingly in the story has gone from a prison all the way to the throne he is given greater acclaim he is given greater popularity and people forget the old king solomon says that happens and life is not fair life is not fair although the young fellow is better than the old king who is not taking advice it is not fair that the old king is forgotten but hold that picture for a moment and come to the second point that solomon is saying solomon lamented that political power paled into insignificance at the change of god look at verses 15 and 16 i saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace there was no end of all the people all of whom he led 
Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Now remember the young fellow who went from prison to the, the palace? This young fellow, he received all the acclaim possible, all the popularity possible. But the fact of the matter is Solomon looks at him and he begins to think he himself is a king. He begins to understand this. This popularity will not last long. Why? Because the future generation is no longer going to remember him as this generation did the old king. The future generation is no more going to remember him as this generation did the old king or the predecessor. You know, I distinctly remember this. I was a very young fellow in 1990 when Margaret Thatcher uh, was contesting the elections in Great Britain. And she lost the elections. I remember that picture that was shown on television. She was coming out of 10 Downing Street. There was a car that was, the, the engine was on. And she was, the black car, I remember that. And she was about to get into the car. Everybody had deserted her. Now she was holding the world's power at one point. And she was coming out all in tears. Everybody had ditched her. She came all alone, got into the car with just a couple of people, and then she drove away from 10 Downing Street. She had made it to the top, but she'd also been ditched once she lost the elections. So Solomon lamented that political power paled into insignificance at the changing of the guard. What's the point of this morning's sermon? Solomon painted four scenes for us, or four pictures for us, each driving home with increased intensity about the pervasiveness of injustice in the world. He said there's injustice in oppression. There's injustice in all the three things that he talked about. Life is unfair. And he offers us no words of advice about this. But what is the application or the point of the passage that we can take away as Christians? The point is this. God is our refuge as we live in this world. And faith in him is supremely worthwhile. God is our refuge as we live in this world. As we live in this world of oppression. As we live in a world that is unfair. And faith in him is supremely worthwhile. We know that the Lord will judge all injustice. And see to it that all of life's stories will have a tidy ending that we would want them to have. All of our life stories will have a tidy ending that we would want them to have. So let me just finish this with an illustration, and I've just taken 45 minutes. Um, the Pearl is a beautiful book, a, a novella, a novella written by uh, John Steinbeck, an American novella. So in this book, Steinbeck presents a picture of Kino, who is a fisherman. You've read this? <laughs> okay, you have. Uh, he's, he's a fisherman, and, uh, and his wife and his kid... And one day, as he's fishing, he finds a pearl of great value, is what uh, the author terms it as. He finds this, this pearl of great value. He was in poverty, and now he's elated that this potentially could change his fortune. This potentially could change the way that he was living, and all of that. And all of a sudden, he begins to see that because of this little pearl, or pearl of great worth that could change his fortune, everybody who was related to him was turning against him. And all of a sudden, everybody's eye was on this particular pearl. People wanted to burn his house. People wanted to spoil his marriage. People wanted to destroy his family. In fact, it doesn't hit him home until somebody comes and kills his son. And all of a sudden, he looks at the pearl. He looks at the dead body of the son and all of that. He takes the pearl. He throws it back into the sea. And he says, now I understand what success really is. Success must never come at the cost of relationships 
or what is really worthwhile. That's what Solomon is trying to picture here for us. That's what Solomon is trying to tell us. There are certain enigmas in the world, things that we don't understand, but he does paint those four pictures for us and tell us that only faith in God is worthwhile as we see all of this and we are frustrated by this. But at the end of the day, at the end of the world, God will bring everything to rights as he solves the problem of injustice. Thank you for your patience. Uh, May the Lord bless you all as you contemplate on this. Father, we come into your presence this morning and we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the words of Solomon as he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, he talked about certain mysteries in the world, certain enigmas. Oppression, injustice, life is unfair and all of that. And we see that and we are frustrated. But we do realize that Our meaning comes from something that is transcendent. Our meaning comes from something that is beyond this world. We look to you for help. We look to you to solve the problems here when you come back. But until then, we understand that faith in you is worthwhile because that is what will sustain us and that is what will give our life's meaning here on this earth. And even as we look to the further things, that are going to happen this day, uh, particularly pray for John, who will be taking the single study. I pray for your blessing upon that meeting as well, and even our time of fellowship. We want to thank you for everything in Jesus' name.